So you're really passionate about regenerative, sustainable agriculture and food, right? And how many times have you heard, yes, that's all very nice, but you couldn't feed the world that way. It wouldn't work at scale. In this episode, I talked to Sir Patrick Holden, the man who's building the roadmap to show us that it could. You'll hear us talk about his latest research into how the UK could feed itself using fertiliser and pesticide-free sustainable agriculture with no grain-fed animals, the tools to take this global, and how this lifetime campaigner for sustainable animal-involved agriculture feels about lab meat, supermarkets, ground-up change and much more. We're so grateful to him for sharing a little of his 50-year career as both a farmer and an activist with us. Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen podcast with Alison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea, living on a newly created family farm in northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Hello, today we welcome a farmer, an incredible campaigner for sustainable food, and a personal hero of mine to the podcast, Patrick Holden. Hello, and thank you for joining us. Hello, thank you for inviting me. So if you don't know Patrick, he's the founder and CEO of the Sustainable Food Trust in the UK, where he's been for over a decade. And the mission of the Sustainable Food Trust is to accelerate the transition to sustainable food systems, which is music to my ear and to listeners of this podcast. And that's mostly what we're going to be talking about today. Patrick has dedicated his whole life to sustainable food. Before founding the Sustainable Food Trust, he worked at the Soil Association in the UK for many years. And he was awarded the CBE for services to organic farming in 2005. As well as this, Patrick is also a farmer of his own dairy herd in Wales, which he's been doing for almost 50 years, I think. And he makes a raw milk cheese named Hafod, which the recipe for which was inspired by, the, um, by a 1917 book called Practical Cheddar Cheesemaking, which um, made me smile when I read that. His male calves stay with the herd until they're eight to nine months old. Then they are slaughtered at a local abattoir and sold as nutrient-dense veal. So, Patrick, um, I'm not sure whether we're talking about lunch or breakfast for you, but we always start the podcast by asking our guests what the last thing they ate was. What was that for you? The last thing I ate was a bowl of muesli. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, it was in Bristol uh, this morning um, because I was in London yesterday evening and I stopped off at... uh, my house, which is also the SFT office in Bristol overnight, Mm. and ate some muesli with farm milk, which I'd saved from the beginning of the week uh, before leaving for the farm, which is where I'm speaking to you from now. Um, So I do try to take milk from our farm Mm. um, when I go away, not obviously overseas, but, you know, when when I'm in Bristol, I try to eat the drink farm milk because it's delicious. Yeah, I mean, compared to milk that you get, 
and a supermarket shelf, for, in my opinion, there's no comparison. It sounds like you agree. Yes, also it's unpasteurized. I think raw milk uh, is really important. There was this American scientist called Pottinger who wrote a mm. book called Pottinger's Cats, which was his um, summary of uh, some research he did with some rather hapless cats where he fed the cats on raw and unpasteurized and sterilized milk, watched, uh, observed the health consequences. And unfortunately, the, um, the cats on the sterilized milk died uh, which is a bit shocking, um, but the cats on the unpasteurized and pasteurized milk appeared to thrive. But in the second generation, health differences emerged, and uh, there were better liver and uh, litter sizes and just better skin conditions associated with the cats that were drinking the unpasteurized milk. So it's rather sad that it's so difficult to get hold of raw milk these days, due to an obsession with um, uh, fear about diseases which of course has afflicted our whole society uh, these days yeah that goes right through everyone being scared of fermentation through to the raw milk and I I've read of that study and it's really interesting that as the generations went on the symptoms got worse and worse and you know we're now really only in kind of one, two, three generations of a lot of serious food change. And who knows what's going to happen in five, six, seven generations' time? That's um, quite a sobering thought. It is. And you know this idea of feeding trials, which, of course, um, new pesticides have to undergo before they're approved. And it's ironic that uh, the scientific community conducts feeding trials with rats for new pesticides, but nobody's done a long-term feeding trial on the impact of food from intensive and industrialised farming systems on health outcomes, except for the one that we're all in, which is that basically you take agriculture, industrialise it, feed it to an entire entire population for a couple of generations, Mm -hmm. and look at the consequences, and that's what we are in, and... There was a man called Sir Albert Howard, who a wonderful, one of the pioneers of sustainable agricultural movement, who wrote a book in 1940 called An Agricultural Testament, which was his homage to what he'd learned from the Indian peasant farmers, where he was uh, studying their methods for 40 years. And he said if a nation industrialises its agriculture, it will end up with a population of impaired physical and mental health. And without putting too much emphasis on it. I think that's what we are currently observing. Mm, yeah, I agree. And that's what your work is is trying to move us away from. So the Sustainable Food Trust, for people who don't know about you, are, as I said, all about support, supporting that transition to regenerative farming. You're advocating for policy change. You're thought leading. You're raising public awareness. And also you're creating global measurements for measuring farm sustainability. And you've just published an absolutely amazing report called Feeding Britain from the Ground Up. And many food answers to our current crisis are prescriptive diets for everyone, no matter where they live. And that's always seemed to me so wrong because to be sustainable, we need to eat what the land around us can provide. And that's very different for me here in Italy to someone in Iceland or someone in Korea. 
And I just love that your organisation has taken this question and looked at it the right way round. You know, let's look at what the land of the UK could produce naturally and build on that. And having read the report, I just congratulate you and your team for such a groundbreaking piece of work. I'll make sure that there are links to the report and the videos that you've made, which I've seen on your site in our show notes, so listeners can go and have a look. Um, for now, could you give us an overview of what the report sets out to do and why you created it? Well, it's very kind of you to speak uh, so well of it. Um, and it's uh, heartening for me to hear that because I think it is a very important report. Um, the idea emerged from a question which I think everyone is asking today, which is, what should I eat? What should I eat if I want to be part of the solution in terms of addressing climate change, improving uh, the relationship between uh, future farming practice and nature, and uh, supporting and promoting my own health? And that the answer to that question uh, has been, I think, uh, taken up by many people who have advocated dietary change, most uh, notably the Eat Lancet report, which was published, I think, two or three years ago now, um, which was funded by the Wellcome Trust, a big three million pound report, which advocated dietary change in response to uh, the climate crisis and the nature crisis, which was based on um, switching to a mainly plant-based diet, dramatic reduction in intake of livestock products. Um, and it was a kind of generic homogenized diet, which was the kind of global diet as a global response to all these crises. And we thought that's completely wrong because, as you just said, it doesn't relate what we might want to eat in the future to what farmers would produce if they switched to sustainable production methods. And um, so we asked the question, what, what would that diet look like if we literally made a commitment in relation to our staple foods to eat uh, in those ratios what the farmers of the future would produce in the UK if they switched to regenerative and sustainable production methods? So since we didn't know the answer to that question, we thought, well, let's do a death study modelling a transition of all UK agriculture uh, to farming systems which produce food in harmony with nature, which minimise reliance on non-renewable external inputs, including nitrogen, fertiliser and pesticides, and also adhere to the principle of the circular economy. In other words, thinking about a farm as uh, a little postage stamp piece of the planet which has its own natural resources of soil and nature and everything and people. And the question that has informed me really ever since I've been on this farm is how much food, food can we produce whilst adhering to those principles without the farm becoming a platform for imported this, that and the other, whether it's fertilisers, animal feed or God knows what, which is mm. most what, how most farms operate today. So we did the modelling. Obviously, it's not one farm system fits all because here in West Wales where it rains a lot and the soils are quite fragile and it's quite hilly the farming system we need to suit this landscape and climate is quite different from the one in say East Anglia 
So we did all the models, different farming systems in the arable east, which is currently the way farms are, uh, more possible to grow more crops. And in the wetter, windy, wild west where I am, a rotation which is fewer crops, more grass, mainly grazed by ruminant animals because they alone can turn the grass into food that we can eat in the form, in our case, of milk and milk transformed into cheese. And then we added up the yields from all the crops and the livestock enterprises, which would constitute a regeneratively farmed Britain. And we divided it by 67 million or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. And we came up with a diet which would represent the productivity per citizen uh, if we made that commitment to eat what the farmers produced. And of course, it's not about giving up everything else like tea, coffee and bananas or anything else that's imported. We are talking here about the staples. And the principle that we assumed people would like would be that in relation to our staple foods, it makes sense that we uh, are loyal to the production which comes from farmers and growers near to where we live. And what is remarkable, I think, about the report is that it challenges the prejudice, which is really out there everywhere, which is, oh, sustainable regenerative farming is very nice uh, for well-meaning people who might farm organically, but you'll never feed the world. Mm. And what we found is that if people changed their diet to align it with the productivity of sustainable farming systems, we wasted about 50% less food and we ate slightly less as an average, we could maintain our current levels of productivity, which I think is a really exciting and inspiring finding. But of course, it does depend, as I've just mentioned, on changing our diets. And the headline changes would be giving up all cheap industrial meat from intensive farming systems, and that's mainly chicken and pork, but also products from mega dairies, eating more vegetables and fruit, of course, but seasonally, and those vegetables and fruits that we can produce in the UK, uh, maintaining our production, our consumption of uh, appropriate, lightly processed grains, because we'd have enough of those. But crucially, when it comes to dairy and red meat, meat from ruminants, um, eating those in preference to grain-fed animals. And if we did that, and if farming systems changed at scale, we would actually be able to more or less maintain our existing consumption of red meat. And that, I think, is probably the most surprising conclusion, because if you ask 10 people mm. walking along a street, you know, what do you think the most sustainable diet is in terms of livestock? They'd say, well, we really should go to a plant-based diet. But if we've got to eat meat, it's probably chicken yeah. we should eat, because that's the least worst. So... It does change a lot of orthodoxies. It's a it's quite a long read, and we're working on a sort of summary of it. But I think it's a really important report. I think that the videos on your site give a really nice overview of it without without having to go in and read, you know, the whole like 120 pages of the PDF you've got. Um, when I when I did read that PDF, the the way that the country would be farmed and how it would look just is so beautiful. I remember scribbling in the margin at one point, how beautiful is this? Because you've got no synthetic fertilisers or pesticides. You've got a return to mixed farming with the land regenerated as it can be naturally. You've got pasture-raised animals whose welfare is respected and who increase biodiversity. You've got no imported protein feeds and therefore we don't need all the monocultures in other parts of the world that are supporting those. 
And you've got 10% of farmland for on-farm nature and 10% of farmland for agroforestry. I just thought, wow, imagine the world like this. I mean, I got goosebumps reading it because not only are you showing that if we could, um, as a you know, as a nation, the UK could maintain its its food, but also it just would be in such a wonderful way that would bring so much outside of the diets. Um, and and so I, it was like it was music to my ears when it, when I read it. I love the fact well, that somebody, yeah, go on. As somebody um, who I was with in California said to me about a month ago, in re, in relation to another question, why not? You know, why wouldn't we step into a future uh, where we're farming in harmony with nature and producing nutrient dense, health promoting food uh, within the uh, capacity of the soils and the farms that occupy our nation and let let us co-create that future and step into it and the reason i'm optimistic that we could do this is because we've been farming here for just short of 50 years as you said mm. and the results of the application of farming systems based on those principles are amazing i mean they really are amazing this is a lovely place it's a hill in West Wales. It's alive with nature, lots of birds, insects, lots of soil life and wild plants, and at the moment, lots of fungi. And the yields are increasing, and I'm pretty convinced that we've actually built soil fertility during the 50 years we farmed it. Mm -hmm. And actually, you know, we've made lots of mistakes along the road. I think we're getting better at farming, and I'm convinced that most farmers would like to farm this way if, if it could be economically viable. So it is an exciting moment in our agricultural history. Mm -hmm. Just you talking about increasing soil fertility in the time that you've been there for 50 years. Let's just talk briefly about the global farm metric that you're um, working on, which is an exciting way to measure farm sustainability. The key, I think, in, in this, in relation to the report, is because the UK has a very heavy population density compared to other countries and does import a lot of its food and would have to carry on doing that, you know, when these um, tenets come to pass. And the global farm metric allows for just imports. Um, by that, I mean trade that would have the same agricultural standards as those that would be practised in the UK. And I, I love that you're doing that. And it makes me think about... To make this work, the whole globe would need to be doing it. And I wonder, are there organisations in other countries who are producing studies and researching just like you have? Well, I think there are many people uh, all over the world now who recognise that um, farming, having been part of the problem, needs to become part of the solution. And the question arises, how would we demonstrate that farmers who go on this journey of change would be delivering so-called public benefits, whether the benefits are increased soil carbon or more biodiversity or cleaner water uh, or less waste or all the things we would want to see from our future farms? And of course, the answer is or should be, we can only uh, demonstrate that if we are measuring the impacts of all the farming systems, and more than that, measuring the impacts 
using a common language, uh, a bit like accounting protocols. Uh, if you uh, go online and do your tax return or you have to do your annual profits and loss accounts if you're a business, the accounting protocols that everyone uses are common internationally. We need a similarly harmonized international language for measuring farm land use sustainability impacts. I was going to say farm, but actually all land use, because it could be for cotton or wool or everything that comes from the land, including timber. And could we do that? Again, why not? And yes, we can. And actually, yes, we are. Because about seven years ago, um, I was in a meeting with a group of farmers, all from the UK and land managers, and we started comparing stories about sustainability audits. And we here are certified by the Soil Association because we're organic. And we get a, an annual visit from the inspector. It happened last week, actually. And I'm telling this against myself, by the way, <laughs> because I helped design the organic inspection system. Really, the inspection system checks that we're not cheating. So the inspector comes here, and in this case, it was she. She checked, you know, how much milk we were producing and how much cheese we were producing and that we weren't cheating on that. In other words, we weren't illicitly buying in milk and that we weren't using any pesticides and all the things that you'd want to be sure about if you wanted to know that our cheese was genuinely organic. But if you do your annual tax return online, uh, you're trusted by the end of revenue that you're going to get it accurate. And if you don't, they'll come at you and fine you and, you know, probably prosecute you. And I think that we should switch to that kind of system where every farmer does a kind of annual sustainability audit using a framework which they can understand. They might need the help of an equivalent to like an accountant or a financial advisor to start with, but they could do it on their own, hopefully, if we get it right. And the data that they would record would include soil carbon, water purity, emissions, uh, resource use, you know, how much diesel, how much electricity, how many people that they employ, uh, whether they're involved with educational activities, everything you can imagine. And we've developed a framework with 10 categories. Actually, it's probably going to be 11, each of which has simple and possible for a farmer to use metrics for measuring the sustainability impacts and if you were to upload that into some kind of a piece of software or portal, then that same audit would then go to the Welsh government, in my case, uh, maybe to somebody who was buying our cheese, for instance, Neil's Yard Dairy are doing a pilot with us on this, so that my, their cheese, or my cheese in this case, would have a sustainability score, or my bank, who would maybe give me interest rates on favourable terms mm. uh, if the audit had a high sustainability score, and then... We, I, could go to COP27 in Cairo, well, in Sharm el Sheikh, uh, in a couple of weeks' time, which I am doing, and we could say British agriculture has been audited, audited for its sustainability impacts, and guess what? We're building soil carbon, which will offset the emissions uh, from our nation, and farmers should be paid for making a contribution towards reducing climate change. So all that could be achieved if we had a common language for measuring farm sustainability. And what is amazing to me is we've now got a coalition of more than 100 organisations that have signed up to go on this journey towards harmonisation. How about that? Wow. You can tell I'm excited. Yeah. I am. Yeah, yeah. I think it, what's wonderful is that 
the sustainable food trust as i said earlier they're you know you're a thought leader so you've come up with this kind of idea but it in order to make this change it's the infrastructure around all of our food and all of our farming that that needs changing and the global food metric kind of moves from the, the thought idea to actually making it real and making it possible for it to happen when i when i read the report i i really felt afterwards quite sobered by firstly the things that were wrong in our food system that need addressing before the regenerative agriculture system could work and secondly this logistical infrastructure and governmental support that would need to be in place to make it work so a huge reduction in our food waste massive support from the government around policy subsidies financial support decentralization of our food systems investment in education food companies paying an actual fair price for their food and poverty grants from the government to to help with food equity i wonder how you and your colleagues at the sustainable food trust feel about this task which seems mountainous to me yeah i think you've just summarized it beautifully um and it, you you might sort of collectively describe those as barriers to change in other words if we are to step into this wonderful future of sustainable regenerative just harmonious food systems which produce food without damaging our planet any more than we already have why isn't that since it seems logical that that should be what we would do why aren't we doing it already and the answer is all the things you've just listed barriers to change and can we unlock those barriers to change in the time we have before climate change becomes irreversible? That's the question. And the answer must be that it, it, achieving that in, say, 10 years is right at the limits of economic, physical, you know, every sort of barrier that we have to overcome is in there. Mm. And if you add them all up, you think that's insuperable. But undergoing this change has the decisive advantage that there is no alternative. And that's something that a man called David Fleming once said um, in relation to, he wrote a, a book, a posthumous book actually called The Lean Economy. He was way ahead of his time in realizing that we were gonna have to step out of the fossil fuel era. Mm. and you could say there's every reason why we're not going to be able to achieve this. But on the other hand, there isn't an alternative. So let's go about it. And we could spend a bit of time, if, if you've got it, uh, just investigating some of those barriers to change that you've just listed mm -hmm. and discussing what needs to be done to overcome them. And uh, you can remind me what they all are. But the first one that comes to my mind is policy. Yeah. So we've had the common agricultural policy, which actually wasn't that bad. Uh, when we were a member of the European Union, but the um, present Conservative administration uh, described it as a, a part of the problem. So when Michael Gove came along uh, after Brexit and said we can now redesign our agricultural policy, he was right in identifying an opportunity. He called it the unfrozen moment. But I think he was disingenuous in blaming the common agricultural policy because various commissioners tried to green it up and guess what, it was the British government that stopped them doing that. So anyway, we are where we are and the 
DEFRA and the three devolved administrations are all in the process of designing their post-Brexit agricultural support schemes. Needless to say, we're trying to influence all of them. And even today, we've sent out a letter to the now shortly to be ex-Secretary of State for DEFRA saying, here's a better way. And I believe that we will be an influence on redesigning the policy. And just to summarise it very quickly, what we need is for farmers to receive payments which are conditional upon them adopting or moving towards truly regenerative farming systems. So that means carrots and sticks. It means rewards if you build soil carbon, if you increase biodiversity, if you reduce water pollution, and you minimise your use of um, inputs which are damaging. And you also conduct farm education services and you employ more people and all the things that you'd imagine that farmers should be doing. And if farmers got lots of money for doing all that and no money for doing stuff which is causing damage, then that would shift the balance of financial advantage towards farming in the way that we are, uh, which isn't currently possible for many farmers because there isn't a strong enough business case for switching. So that's one important example of how we can unlock the headwind of policy which isn't helpful. And we can combine that with the application of the polluter pays principle, which is obviously a stick. So if you buy nitrogen fertilizer, you should pay tax for the damage caused. And that money could be recycled into sustainable agriculture or even and regulation where the most damaging practices would be banned altogether. How do you feel about so the, the how do you feel about the food waste? Because I was staggered by the um, statistics for food waste that you mention in the report. Well, I think food waste is very much a symptom of you know poor food. I think we don't value food anymore, mm. partly because it's too cheap and partly because it isn't very good. So we live in a society now where it's, it, we never think about throwing away food which has gone past its sell-by date or is just you know what we didn't eat. And I think we have to shift. We need. We will need to pay more for our food, um, but the food needs to be better and more nutrient-dense. And I think that during the war, there's a very good example, really, of when food was scarce and we didn't waste anything. Mm. And we need to have kind of re reform our attitude towards food where we value it properly again. And, of course, if we do put up the price of food, which is happening anyway because of Ukraine right now, that's going to create a major issue and a problem for people in the, say, 20% of lowest income groups for whom the affordability of food is really a challenge. But that there's no reason why the government shouldn't um, and wouldn't step in uh, to support access to good food from those lower income groups, as they are already doing, interestingly enough, for renewable, for, for energy. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to have a kind of comparison in our mind between how we switch towards renewable energy systems and how we switch towards sustainable food systems. The government will need to step in, protect the lower income groups, and that's right. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I never made that parallel between the kind of energy and the, the food systems. And there's a kind of question which steps in the middle of that, which is it feels like to me we're not only fighting this battle against polluters and and you know wasteful consumerism but also against other enthusiasts who really do genuinely care about the world's future so they might suggest veganism or they might suggest technological solutions that 
don't sit well with our understanding of the issues or our politics or our ethics. But I've heard you say before, and it is clear that lack of consensus is stopping us moving forwards in this. And I wondered in your view, how should these debates be tackled? Is it a case of facts and figures or do the discussions need to be moved to a more fundamental level you know the issues of death and the issues of consumerism or is there some other way to address it well i think you're right that those who are advocating plant-based diets or in the case of many many young people say go vegan or largely vegan or who are enthusiastic about lab-based protein production, are well-intentioned. And I think in particular, if you look at the big move towards veganism amongst young people, I think it's a kind of protest vote. Mm. And it's completely understandable why, if you suddenly begin to realise that just about all the meat that you can buy in supermarkets today comes from industrial livestock systems where the animals never get out, and there is welfare abuse going on, and it's sort of endemic and systemic, uh, and you want to do something about it, you might just think, oh, I, I don't want anything to do with this system. I'm just going to go vegan. And it seems logical. But I think the problem with that, and this is the root of the confusion that is everywhere at the moment, um, if you turn your back on all livestock products, you're actually paradoxically making it more difficult for the farmers who would like to go towards more regenerative production make the transition. And the reason I'm saying that is because if you are, say, an arable farmer in the East of England at the moment, or you're growing vegetables for a supermarket, which they're all grown in the fens of East Anglia, and somebody says to you, well, um, would you like to go um, towards proper regenerative farming? And you say yes. Mm. Then the next thing is, well, how would I do that? And the answer, as you read in our Feeding Britain report, is to switch from continuous arable production to a system which involves a crop rotation with a fertility building phase. Mm. Let's say the rotation is six or seven years. Half of that period would be in grass and clover and herbs or other plants, which would rebuild the soil fertility, which is depleted during the grain or vegetable production period. And the only way to turn that 50% of the area of the farm, which would be under grass at any one time, into food that people can eat and therefore provide an income from the farmer is with grazing livestock. And that means dairy cattle or beef cattle or sheep. And of course, the farmer is going to think, well, why would I do that when the Climate Change Committee, yeah. uh, leading people like Sir David Attenborough, and goodness knows who, who else, George Monbiot comes to mind, mm. all saying, if you're going to be part of the solution, Give up eating livestock if you can, but if you if you only want to partly give up, just especially give up eating uh, red meat. So that leads to confusion abounding, which I think is one of the major barriers to change. We are not aligned on what we think a sustainable diet should be. And worse than that, the science community is split on it as well. Mm -hmm. And resolving those issues is really important because government like to always say they're led by the science, which is probably crap, actually, because they're probably they're led by their own self-interest yeah. of getting re-elected. And if their self-interest is getting in getting re-elected, nothing wrong with that, you could argue, um, is informed by well-meaning people who think that a plant-based diet is the future. And if David Attenborough says so, it must be true. Mm. 
there, and and not only David Attenborough, but also the Climate Change Committee says mm. it's true, then what are the government going to do? So that means that the policy that I've just mentioned that would help farmers switch probably is going to be sending the wrong messages. So it's not easy to unravel some of these issues. And I think the, the way to do it is through conversations like this, to be honest. So I don't think it's an easy way because the issues are complex. They're systemic yeah. and they need to be understood as a whole. And somehow we need to make them simple. And I think one of the ways to do that is to think about it, you know, it's all this stuff looks like, oh, my God, you, how on earth will we change all this? It's a huge global problem. It's reinforced by all sorts of factors that I've just been outlining. But actually, the answer starts with us. So as individual citizens, we're incredibly powerful because if we shop differently and we eat differently and we do so at scale, we are the change. And it is really a kind of microcosm, macrocosm thing. So if you're overwhelmed by the complexity of the problem, just think of your own body and your own actions. That's where it starts. And that's the, the beginning and the end of it, really. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I do often feel impotent that there's only just me with my actions and the few people in the world that I can touch and I want to change the whole world. So yeah, it, it's, it's you frustrating. Say, you say only just you. It's actually only you, but it is actually you. It is you. It's us. Yeah. It's all of us. That's all there ever is. Us, individual people, and our collective consciousness is the power that can change things. It was it was never any different from that. And I know people talk about vested interests and big corporate people, but actually, even those people who are running these companies, they're individual human beings. They've got children. Mm -hmm. They're scared. They don't know how to change. And I think we mustn't be overwhelmed with the forces against us because in, in the end, it starts with us. Would you like to learn to ferment from some of the world's leading authors and educators of fermentation? In your own home, at your own pace? If so, check out fermentationschool.com. Whether it's kraut, kombucha, cheese or bread, there are over 50 courses, all presented by women creators, including my two, one teaching you how to make whole grain rye sourdough, the other sharing an ancestral Scottish oat fermentation called Suens. Use the code AKP at the checkout and you'll get 10% off. Happy fermenting. Yeah, so I, I had down on my pad here another question for you, kind of around that, that, you know, you're working with government but you're also working with individuals as part of the Sustainable Food Trust work. And it's it's easy for us to think, well, you know, the industry's doing what it needs to make its profit and government's doing what it needs to do, like you said, to get re-elected. But we have incredible power, like you um, said, that we can literally, if we just stop shopping at supermarkets the entire economy of the food world will completely changed will completely change and i i wonder whether you think it sounds like you think this change needs to come from the bottom up more than it needs to come from the top down do you agree that's such a i mean that's that is the profound question isn't it and i i think it probably needs to be initiated from the bottom up but if we don't work at the top-down level as well, 
and in the middle, if you see what I mean, mm. I don't think the change will happen fast enough. But I think that if you ask yourself the question, if you're a sort of captain of industry, say you're running a supermarket and you are anxious that about climate change because your kids are probably beating you up because you're not doing enough. Very often I think these, you know, the children of these people who've got all this power who um, are big influences on them. And you don't quite know how to respond. I think what's going to move you is if enough of your customers are looking as if they want to shop in a different way or buy different products. So I think at the moment that isn't the case. I think if you say if we take this situation right now with the Ukraine and uh, trust-induced recession, and we look at how people are shopping, interestingly enough, they're buying less organic food, partly because the supermarkets are reducing the shelf space allocated to organic food because they're predicting a downturn in you know, the sales of more expensive food. Um, and there's a lot of confusion, as we've just discussed, about what people should eat anyway, and people are trying to shop more economically. So right now, the force of individual citizens exercising their buying power to be the change that we need to see is not strong enough. And why is that? It's partly because, obviously, people have got less money to spend on food. But I think it's also, as we also just mentioned, a confusion about what the right thing to do is. And that's compounded by um, the lack of a clear labelling scheme, which says this food is better for the climate, better for nature and better for you. Um, and you could say, you could answer that by saying, well, we've got the organic food, which is already on sale, which, you know, I was part of developing the standards for that, etc. But I don't think the organic proposition is very widely understood. And it's really sad that that is the case. But I think an awful lot of people think that organic food is nice, and it probably is better for the environment. They're a bit hazy about that. It might, might be better for me, although there's a dispute about that. Uh, but it's a kind of choice that I'd make in happy, wealthy times. But realistically, you know, at the moment, it may be outside the re my reach. And that plus the fact that the polluter doesn't pay and the subsidies are going to the more intensive farmers, uh, plus all the confusion that's out there anyway, which we just discussed, leads to, sadly, actually a reduction in sales of organic food during recessionary times. That happened during 2008, mm -hmm. and I'm certain it's happening again now. And it's very interesting to note that right now, conventional dairy farmers are getting a higher price for their milk than organic dairy farmers. Could you even invent that? Gosh. But it's the truth. So we're, we're in a difficult situation, and we really do need to support organic farmers. And I don't think you should necessarily walk out of supermarkets, because if enough of us go to the supermarket thingy, you know, customer services test and say, why aren't you selling more organic food? They will listen to that um, and they will listen to the sort of information from their tills. But right now, we're not in a very good situation and we need to do something about it. And the, the actions that we can take is to make sure that a greater proportion of the food that we buy, the staple foods that we buy, come from farms or farming systems which are sustainable, ideally close to us with a known story behind them. And if you can't get those foods in your local supermarket, yes, you could go to a box scheme or a farmer's market mm. or you can buy online. 
But I don't think we should say it's all about just abandoning supermarkets because the time scale we've got to make this big transition is so short that actually supermarkets and big food companies need to be part of the solution. That's my view. So I'm not anti-big mm-hmm. food companies. I think they're going to have a great challenge to adjust to the kind of food systems that we would all like to see replace the ones we've had in the past. But I think we should include them in this discussion. Okay, so you're basically asking us to, you know, go to the supermarkets and demand from them what what we want to see. Yeah, exactly that. That's what we need to do. You know, I go to Tesco in Bristol when I'm there, you know, and I go there and I think, oh, right, what am I going to buy that's part of the solution? It's hard. Mm. You know, there isn't very much food in there that you think, well, does it come from a farmer that I know or even where they even live, let alone that it's sustainable? I can't answer the questions. But then, you know, just to give you an example, in Totterdown, Mm. the local Tesco doesn't sell whole milk. It only sells whole organic milk. It only sells semi-skin organic milk, some weird reason. Mm. And so what we should do is go to the customer service desk and say, why aren't you stocking whole organic milk? And that they won't know, of course, but I think they have to register send a note up to their, you know, the directors or whoever it is. And... You know, we shouldn't underestimate how much that different that uh, that makes difference that makes. And if enough of us say we're not happy with this labelling scheme, so we're talking to a woman high up in Tesco, and she's aware of this stuff. She's personally committed to the sort of issues we're discussing now. Mm. But she's in a huge system, mm. and the system is you know like a sort of a super tanker, hard to reverse. But you know, if we achieve getting these messages out widely, I think it can be reversed. It's got to be reversed. And I would say if you did a survey amongst the CEOs of all the retailers and all the big food companies, most of them know that the game's up. They just don't know how to go on the transition journey. Okay, that's making me think. But here, um, I would say that 95% of the stuff that comes into my house food-wise is from local markets managed to virtually ditch supermarkets and it's not been easy I agree and I wonder you think it's past that to ask for people to do that and that we need to involve supermarkets in the change I mean because if everyone just stopped going to supermarkets then the supermarkets would have to change anyway and yeah yeah, they would. And it's fine for, you know, if you can do what you're doing, I mean, mm. I salute you, you know, we should, that's probably the most radical action you can take. And I'm not arguing against it. Mm. I'm simply saying that we need to be inclusive. So if somebody listening to this, you know, is currently buying 95% of their shop in the supermarket, and they yeah. think, I just can't, I can't make this change. I don't think we should exclude them from being part of the solution just by saying, well, unless you do what you've done. Yeah, okay. Uh, and you can't be part of the solution. So I think everyone's got to be in this, not just people who are able or just determined enough to make really <laughs> radical uh, food buying choices like you have made, mm. which is brilliant. I mean, the more people that do what you're doing, the faster the change will happen. But yeah. I don't think it should only be confined to those kind of more radical solutions. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I want to ask you another question about the the food results of the report. So you kind of said that, you know, there's going to be more fruit and veg, similar amount of beef and lamb, and much less pork and chicken because it's industrially raised and fed food 
grains, basically. Um, yeah. The same amount of grain, which would go all to the people. And then there are also more pulses. And I wanted to go back to lab meat. And I wonder, you know, personally, I've got lots of reasons why I'm suspicious of lab meat. And in our household, I'd much rather cook a beef heart or some offal than include lab meat in our diet. But at the same time, my family can't currently digest beans very well. And I think we'd struggle with the quantities that are in the report. Considering that the UK currently imports 45% of its food and we could continue to do so, kind of led me to think, is there a place for lab meat to fill part of that 45%? Or are you completely against it as a technology and an option moving forward? I th oh god that's such a good interesting question um i think it's important not to be ideologically closed-minded about all new technologies so take precision fermentation lab meat all these technologies which tech companies love and i think mm -hmm. a lot of the investment community seem to love as well because they just think oh great now we can, you know, now we've kind of um, analysed the genome and we can, you know, reinvent and gene edit and do God knows what mm. to the, or, you know, the sort of template of life that we, we can just sort this problem with technology. I mean, it just sounds so beguiling and I think probably very unlikely to be achieved. Mm. But if it was possible to produce a genuinely health-promoting and safe uh, protein, which would still have to be the result of biological activity, because you can't, you know, it's got to be done through some sort of process, which is almost certain to involve living organisms. And you could prove that the life cycle analysis in terms of the energy in and energy out was better than what you could achieve in nature, mm. and that it helped, you know, people who otherwise go protein deficient or whatever. I think one shouldn't be ideologically opposed to that. But it's a bit like, say, vertical farming and hydroponic nutrition of plants. So anybody listening to this who buys salad vegetables in a supermarket, you probably don't know that unless they're organic, they won't have been grown in soil. And that's a very significant percentage and probably a growing percentage of all the salad vegetables I'm talking about tomatoes, lettuce, mm -hmm. cucumbers, peppers, all these salad vegetables, they're no longer grown in soil. They're grown in a uh, nutrient solution hydroponically, uh, which is a kind of stomach tube type nutrition and bypassing what you might refer to as the stomach of the plant, which is the soil. Mm -hmm. And are there long-term consequences in terms of nutrient density and trace element nutrition from consuming those salads from hydroponic production? I'm certain there are. Mm. Should we ban it? Well, that's an interesting question because it, it, if you did ban it tomorrow, there would literally be no sellers in the supermarkets. So I don't think we should be opposed to that system as a matter of principle. But what we should point out is that there are consequences from abandoning soil. And if you do a proper life cycle analysis of the plants, I suspect that you'd show that in terms of energy and resource use and everything else, it wouldn't be so good, especially if you factored in nutrient density. So I think it's 
it's about looking at the detail of lab reason, of precision fermentation, and working out what's wrong with it, and then giving people the choice. And I think we'll find out in the end that if we switch to the kind of farming systems that we've outlined in Feeding Britain from the ground up, we would actually have enough meat and livestock products, including dairy products and eggs, mm. from that kind of farming system to satisfy our nutrient needs. Mm. Okay, thank you. Um, the people listening to this podcast are um, interested in, and a lot of them completely convinced by everything you're saying. And I wonder, um, they often are on their own in a sense that, you know, they hold these beliefs, but everyone around them, their family or their friends, not doesn't necessarily have the same beliefs. And I wonder what you would advise someone to say who's ready to change their buying choices, ready to eat in this way, and yet the people around them who probably care a bit about the environment and but probably haven't questioned much the, the vegan ideal or the power of um, intensive farming to save us. What would you advise someone to say to those people on a one-to-one level? I'm supposed to have an answer to that, and I'm not <laughs> sure if I have. I mean, it's it's such a it's such an important question. Um, we had uh, a young woman here last weekend who was at university who I'd met at a um, a party, a 60th birthday party, and her mother was there. 50th birthday party, actually, and her mother was there, and. She met me and said, "Can I? I'm a vegan. And I'd like to come and spend the weekend on your farm." So I said yes, and she came here. And by the end of the weekend, she'd realised that her prejudice against dairy farming mm-hmm. was misguided—not misguided, but it shook her conviction that actually we all needed to move to a plant-based and vegetarian-based dietary future. And I think what did it for her was seeing happy cows, seeing that you could rear male calves in a compassionate way, seeing the love that is part of our management of our dairy herd, and also tasting the milk and the cheese that comes from that system, and also observing a farming system working in harmony with nature. So I think it was evidence of of her own eyes and direct experience that shifted her view. And I reckon that we need lots of people to have those kind of experiences. And some of them will be influencers, as they say these days, because they'll be on social media and they will talk about their experiences and they'll share it. And I think world will get out. But I think that there's, it's very difficult if you're not, you know, obviously I'm well informed about these issues because I'm practicing it. You know, I'm here milking the cows and everything. You're milking in the morning. In fact, I'm doing the next three milkings here. So I'm still doing about three milkings a week. And as uh, my wife, Becky, very kindly described us and me as being, we are members of our herd. So although we milk the cows, we look after them, we're actually part of the herd. And the, the cows in our herd see us as part of, their, of, of our herd, mm. which I think is a sort of profound thing because it's kind of suggesting that we are not separate from nature, we're part of nature. And how can people who live in a city who don't, haven't had any experience mm. to farming, who have listened to all the you know stuff about 
plant-based diets and everything else, uh, be convinced that there's a different way by a few people like some of the people that listen to your podcasts would like to suggest to them. It's hard. It is hard. And, you know, so we need to get compelling evidence that actually this farming system could be applied at scale. And I think we need more farms to be open to the public to act as educational platforms. We need film. We're working with a couple who made the film Kiss the Ground, Mm -hmm. which is on Netflix. Everybody, if you haven't seen Kiss the Ground on Netflix, do watch it. It's a brilliant film. Uh, The people who made that film, they're called Josh and Rebecca Tickell. They're making a sequel, which is going to be called Groundswell. It'll probably come out in 2024, which is basically looking at the regenerative transition, which is trying to take place all over the world and getting it out there. So I think film is an important medium, but I think direct experience and then just sharing knowledge. And if you know a little, you probably know more than you think. And if that little that you do know has informed your dietary choices i think we just have to share that with as many people as possible and i do think it sort of gets out there by osmosis i think that there are many many people who are open to being persuaded that there is a different way of farming a better kind of food system which is within our reach and they just want to see the evidence taste the evidence and go on the journey we just need to yeah yeah I think you're so right that direct contact, direct experience is so important to see the way that farms are managed and also to taste it because that's what bowled me over, you know, at the very beginning of my journey. The difference in taste between an unpasteurised milk to the milk on the supermarket shelf, you know, the difference in the flavour of the meat and the difference in how that made me feel kind of, you know, when I was engaging with it, with my senses, but also afterwards with how my body felt. And and you can't, you know, personal evidence like that, you just can't deny. It's, um, it's very That's clear. That's so true. That's mm. completely true. Yeah, you know, we're lucky because we can quite often eat a meal from here, which has been entirely produced on the farm. And the most memorable meals I've ever eaten have been from food with a story that's directly connected, in my case, with our own farm or a farm that produced the food or a small holding or whatever. And it's interesting in relation to our milk, our milk tastes delicious and it tastes most delicious when we've had the best milkings, you know, with no poo and lots of love and the cows being utterly calm, which happens increasingly often these days. And the best cheese we've ever produced definitely comes from the best milk we've ever produced because to coin a phrase not mine you are what you eat eats if you see what yeah. i mean so in the cheese it's what the cows have eaten which then produces the milk which is then transformed into cheese and our cheese store is like a unique microbiome so there's no other cheese store in the world like our cheese store because it's got the molds and the bacteria and everything the ecosystem of our farm and every cheese store is like that. And then if you take a step back to the milk that goes, the raw milk, which goes into our cheese fat, that's a unique microbiome of fermentation. We talk about precision fermentation. We're doing precision mm-hmm. fermentation when we make cheese. It's just that it's precision fermentation working with nature. Take a step back again. Think of the cow's rumen, which is this incredible digestive organ The cow eats the grass and then her rumen is able to break down that grass through internal stomach fermentation 
uh, into food for her and also food for us. So in a way, we are managing on our farm a sort of integrated collection of units of fermentation. And isn't that beautiful yeah. that we are, and we are not separate from that ecosystem, the people that run it. We're part of that yeah. ecosystem. You know, yeah. as, as King Charles, the now King Charles says, we, we think of ourselves from being separate from nature. We are not separate from nature. We are nature. Yeah. And if we remember that, start, it's such a beautiful thing. Yeah, you're just um, allowing it to channel in a certain way. Wonderful. Yeah, that's what somebody recently said, a person who I met at a conference, he said, you know, in a way, what I'm doing, it was a dairy farmer, he said, I'm managing, my responsibility is to manage the microbiome of the collective cow's stomachs in my herd. So if I make a dietary change, it mustn't be too sudden, you yeah. know, so that the diet of the cows can accommodate. And in fact, their bacterial flora can accommodate to the change, just like that with us, mm. you know. So we have a stomach and we know that what we eat affects our digestion, obviously, and because we observe the consequences, ha, ha, ha. And it's the same if you milk cows. Uh, the evidence is clear in their poo which varies from day to day. And then that's one kind of fermentation system. And then down the road, there are others. And it's all this kind of magical interweaving of different kinds of fermentation systems, which we have to uh, look after if we're going to produce good food. Yeah, magic is the word. You said magical, and that's what I was thinking. I wanted to ask yes. you... Um, it's science, yeah. it's, science it's, art, it's alchemy. Yeah. It's all three. You know, it's not, yeah. it, They're all... Open. Yeah, indeed it is. Um, I wanted to ask you a kind of overview question because you've been in this industry for such a long time. You know, you left the Soil Association over a decade ago, where, as you alluded to, you did such amazing work to get organic food as a concept known in the UK. But you left that um, organisation frustrated that organic as a labelling system could only go so far. You recognise that a wider, larger scale change was needed. A decade on from that, I wonder, have you been able to achieve what you wanted? What have you learned along the way? And what's your opinion on what we need now? Well, I suppose the honest answer is no. Obviously, we're a long way from achieving what needs to be achieved. But I don't feel at all despondent about that. I feel quite optimistic. Because um, I go back, obviously, because I'm 72, uh, which means that I was around in the 60s during what I experienced was a consciousness change. And those people are all those festivals, Isle of Wight or wherever, and felt part of that amazing uprising of young people who saw the world through a new lens in the late 60s, early 70s. I think. That was a period in human history when the conditions were right for the arising of some sort of consciousness shift. And I think that there are periods which the reasons for which maybe are beyond our understanding when that those conditions are right for consciousness shifts. I think that young people today, those at school, but also the Generation Z or whatever they're called, doesn't matter are open to this this kind of new thinking. And it's like animals that know when the tsunami is coming or whatever. 
there is a wish to be part of this change. And I think it has a sort of spiritual root, really. It's, it's, a, it's not just coarse physical changes that need to be made to the way we manage our relationship with the earth. It's more subtle than that. But I think that the force is with us, and therefore there's reason for optimism. Nice, thank you. What can we do to support the work that you're doing? Well, anybody who's listening this to this who is not familiar with our work, you could go on our website. We have a fortnightly newsletter, which will keep you up to date with uh, what we're up to. We're on Instagram. And also, by the way, on our farm, uh, we are Havod, H-A-F-O-D, cheese. That's our Instagram. And we post regularly on our Instagram. So follow us. Um, in terms of your actions, be the change, you know, as we discussed earlier. Um, try to buy a proportion of your food, that which you can afford and doesn't sort of make your life impossible, from more sustainable sources. And if you are a supermarket shopper, as I said, ask and demand and then take your customer elsewhere if they're not listening. Um, be the change in your life and in your heart and in your spiritual practice, because collectively there's strength in numbers. And I do think that we need to we need to keep together. You know, we need to feel a sense of community in this because I don't think there's anything that we're involved with which is not part of a, a, a latent common consciousness. I think it's like, you know, when in the days when I used to go to London a lot, you get into a London taxi, which I don't do anymore. Now I either walk or go by tube, but, you know, in the, those days you could. And you get into a London taxi and you say, hi, mate. He goes, hi, mate, what do you, what do, you do then? And, you go, well, actually, I'm involved with farming and sustainable agriculture. He says, oh, yeah, well, my missus, she, she does that. Yeah, she likes that. <laughs> then you go into a conversation, about one minute, you're into it. You know, oh, yeah, I see what you mean. You know, this, the farming isn't very sustainable these days. And it's amazing how quickly, and I think, you know, that's because, you know, they say about taxi drivers in the old days, they used to have the not what was called the knowledge. They had to know every street in London. And so they're kind of like an advanced version of human consciousness. <laughs> they, they, apparently, they did some study of the whatever it's bit of the brain that we all have, and the taxi drivers have gotten a large one. So you can think that they're like a focus group for, you know, kind of fast forward moving consciousness. And I think that there is in all of us an awareness of many of the issues that we've been speaking about which is, you don't have to have more knowledge through practice, which I've got, to know whether it's true or not. You can recognise it because it's in us. You know, it's in our digestion. It's in our consciousness. It's out there. We're not separate from this change. We're part of it. Yeah, completely. Thank you. I feel a wonderful sense of community connecting with you, and I'm sure that the listeners to the podcast do too. Thank you ever so much for your time, Patrick. Well, thank you for... Um, inviting me to speak with you because I do think you know in answer to the question what bring what accelerates the consciousness shift well hopefully it's just communication yeah. like this yeah yeah wonderful I um, wish you and everyone at the sustainable food trust much strength and yeah clear consciousness and uh, wisdom going forward thank you ever so much thank you thank you bye Thanks again to Sir Patrick Holden for his time and wisdom.
If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it over the garden fence or by email or on social media. As Patrick said, it's communication that will accelerate the change we need. So help us with that by sharing his and our work. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram. Andrea's at farm and hearth and Alison's at ancestral underscore kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun, exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen. Thank you.